Lord, we just gather here in your presence as we look into your word. Lord, we just ask that you make it known to us. You make it evident to us. Lord, shine your glory on us as we explore your word. Teach us to be not only individuals that follow you in the kingdom, but also a community together that follows you in the kingdom. Amen. Well, I think if you are a parent, you will know that besides hearing things like, are we there yet? Probably the other thing that we hear the most is, that's not fair, right? That's not fair. We say, what do we always say? Life's not fair, right? You got to pay taxes and then you die, right? uh, Maybe you don't tell your kids that. I tell them and then they say, what's taxes, right? (laughs) None of us likes being mistreated. We all really, really enjoy fairness. We enjoy knowing that we get what we deserve. We want to feel safe. We want to feel like we're getting ahead in life. We want to feel like when paycheck time comes, we are getting paid what we feel is owed for us based on the work that is given to us. When retirement comes, we feel like we want that quality of life that we planned for. And for the most part, we believe, and we even say it all the time, that people get what they people get what they deserve for the good and for the bad, and we call that justice. It's justice that he got that, or it's justice that she got that. When it doesn't work out that way, that people get what they deserve, we often call it an injustice. That person has done nothing with their life They've bought lottery tickets every day for the past 30 years, and now they're a millionaire. That's not fair, right? We don't believe in that kind of value. We want what's deserved, what we deserve, what should be given to us. This morning, as we continue our Illustrate series, we're going to be looking at a parable that if you listen to it and if you let it, it will challenge you on your view on justice and fairness. This parable is a unique one by Jesus. It not only explains how we should live, but how the kingdom of God is manifesting itself in our everyday lives by challenging or subverting our human standards around fairness and justice. Throughout the series, I've been defining the kingdom of God as the rule and reign of God manifesting itself in our everyday life. And that is important to understand. And I think that this definition for this illustrated series uh, also is demonstrated throughout the Bible. Illustrate is our Sunday morning series exploring the parables that Jesus used to illustrate for us the realities of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God so that we can embody what life should look like. This morning, the parable we're going to be looking at, sometimes there's ones that are talking about how the kingdom's delayed, or it's coming, or it's already here. This one is very much around this second part here, that we can know how to embody or be disciples of what the kingdom should look like. And we're going to see, as I said, that it'll kind of challenge our view on justice and fairness. So I invite you to open your Bibles with me in Matthew 21 through 6. We're going to be looking at what is often called the parables of the workers of the vineyard, or in the vineyard. And 
You know what's really interesting is a couple weeks ago we looked at the parable of the own, or maybe it was last week, of the own forgiving servant, the own merciful servant, right? A lot of people said, oh, I would have wanted to had to preach on that parable. They find that parable to be the most difficult. I will tell you out of all of the parables, this is my least favorite because it's, in my opinion, the most challenging or the most uncomfortable. Before we look at today's parable, I want to give some background information to what's happening according to Matthew and his narrative. Right before Jesus tells this parable, he's encountered a young man who's rich, who's had a really fair life. He's gotten what he's deserved, maybe inherited most of it. He's filthy rich. So the young man, he walks up to Jesus. He says, how do I get to be part of that kingdom that you're proclaiming about? I hear you talking about it around town. It kind of sounds like my jam. I want to know, how do I get to be part of that? So Jesus looks at him and says, well, you should keep your commandments, especially, you know, that one about loving your neighbor. Oh, Jesus, I've trained myself to do all those. What else do I do? I mean, it's obvious that as I watch your 12 that follow you around, like your little fan club, you're demanding something more than just keeping the commandments. So Jesus looks at him. He says, then you must sell everything that you have. Everything that makes you. Everything that defines you. Then after selling that, I want you to take the proceeds of all that. And I want you to sell it to the poor. I want you to give the money to the poor. And then I want you to follow me. Jesus drew a really hard line in that example. This young man proved that people can modify their behavior to mimic the life of God's children in the way that we at times mimic something we like about somebody else. Like Israel, sadly, too often our church communities are full of people, as we say, faking it till we make it. We have communities of people that know how to live in the boundaries of what is expected and what is tradition. That breeds safety and familiarity. We also have people that never saw the kingdom living kind of happen in church, and they push the boundaries in a wall with every breath, and they are yearning for churches that are full of transparency and authenticity. Jesus drew a line in the sand that says encountering the kingdom blows up everything we believe in now. It transforms us. When we encounter his kingdom, it's transforming. Jesus challenged a man on what he valued and what he saw as fairness and justice. Sadly for this man, it was just too much. In fact, as Matthew records, it says that the man walked away. The challenge was too much. He was sad. Let's admit, deep down for us, this is probably a really challenging teaching of Jesus. Most of us get pretty sad when we read it. We like to avoid it. We don't like to talk about what it means to be rich. In this interaction on wealth with Jesus, the type of surrender that Jesus demanded of those following him was really too much for this individual. As a man walks away, probably grumbling, oh, that guy, I, I didn't ask him to tell me to sell my stuff. I just wanted to know how I needed to follow him. Right? That's probably how he walks away, sad, because it's too much, too costly. 
Jesus turns at that moment to his disciples and tells them, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man like him to go into the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for something too big to fit into something too small than for somebody to engage the kingdom both in here and now and the yet to come. This should be one of the hardest texts for us to swallow. Fact, though, sadly, we've interpreted it, reinterpreted it, changed and rechanged what we think about it. Somehow, the camel is not really a camel. The eye of the needle is really not an eye of a needle. And the riches aren't really the stuff that we have in defiance. Jesus turns to the disciple. And I encourage us to take it at face value. And he says, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom. This morning, most of us are rich, not only in our quest of wealth, but also in our quest of fairness and personal justice, getting what we deserve. And to be fair, do you know that the federal guidelines for a family of four poverty level is uh, I think it's 26,000, 24,600, that's what it is, 24,600. Most of us as an individual make more than 24,600, and so uh, most of us then are also rich. So as we think about this parable, and as I think about this mic that is not getting along with me today, we need to let this parable pause us. Just like this, in this interaction, Peter then begins to ask a whole bunch of questions of selfish desire. Peter looks at Jesus and says, what about us, those disciples that have given up everything? I mean, Jesus, to follow you, we left our jobs, we got yelled at by our wives, you know, we're behind in our mortgage, uh, we've lost all respectability, we've lost all wealth. You know, what is to be of despised vagabonds like us? You know, what about us, those people that are marginalized now? Those that are defined by their troubles? Jesus answers Peter very straightforward. That's how Jesus often responds to Peter, because Peter is so straight with him. He tells Peter, you've given it all to sit at my side. And at the end, you will help me rule and reign. Many we'll see that the first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And it's right after this that Jesus tells the parable we're going to read this morning. It's right after this whole interaction, and this whole interaction with Peter, that Jesus tells this parable in which he repeats this same point, that the first will be last, and the last will be first. Wealth and accomplishments are a way, have a way of defining who we are, the way we think, and the way we live. These things have a way of shaping us because we always want more. We always want more justice. We want more. And then when we get more, we're on the defensive to keep what we have. And in desiring to acquire wealth, our mind changes to strict lines of what is fair and deserved and what is not. And it irks us when somebody gets ahead of us that just doesn't deserve it. They haven't done what we've done. Jesus tells the parable of the workers in the vineyard in that way. He's speaking to his disciples who have surrendered everything, their houses, their professions, and credibility to be his disciples. And as we look at the culture around us that defines uh, success in the very much the same way as this culture did, around wealth, around success, around what's getting owed, then we realize that Jesus is drawing a hard line in the sand for us as well. 
Listen in. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day, and he sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning he went out, saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He asked them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went, and he went out again around noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still other workers standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long and doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they replied. He said to them, then you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones who were hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came in who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who hired last worked only one hour, he said, and you have also made them equal to us and who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the whole day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want to do with my own money? Are you that envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. It's a challenging parable, isn't it? It messes with what we think we're due and our fairness and our justice. Okay, let's just pack them and go home, right? We, it's too, too troubling to deal with. What was Jesus saying? Well, this parable Thomas Keating writes in the kingdom is like this. Human standards of judgment are subverted in this parable. Ordinary standards of justice cannot explain how the kingdom works. Now, if we were honest with ourselves, most of us don't like our ideas, our human standards of justice and fairness messed with. We want to know what rules to play by in life. People get what they deserve for the good, for the bad. We like knowing what is fair. We like knowing what is justice. We don't like anyone messing with our understanding of that. Things get messy and violent when people across the political, religious, or cultural spectrum of us mess with what we know, what we believe about justice and fairness. However, the point of this parable is just like that. Jesus is subverting what they knew to be true with these new standards of the kingdom. Likewise, about this parable, C.H. Dodd says this. The point of this story is that the employer, out of sheer generosity and compassion, for the unemployed pays a large wage to those who have worked for one hour only as those who have worked all day. It is a striking picture of the divine generosity which gives without regard to the measures of strict justice. Divine generosity, we would agree, feels really good when we're the recipients of it, when we experience something as a blessing, as God pours out his blessings divinely and generosity on us feels really good right yeah it's good i feel energized i feel energetic 
I like this. But when it's something that we are called to show to others or spend as an investment on others, it's where it gets to be a little tougher. We don't like to think about that. It's good when God pours out his generosity on us, but if I have to pour my generosity off on somebody less deserving than me, that's rough, right? That's how we think as humans. Now let me read from William Barclay about this parable. Parable may sound like it's made up to us, as it's purely imaginary. But that's being far from the case. Apart from the form of payment, the parable describes the kind of thing that frequently happened at certain times in Palestine. In Palestine, the grape harvest ripens towards the end of September. And then close on its heels, the rains came. If harvest is not ingathered before the rains break, then it's ruined. And so to get the harvest in in time is a frantic race against time. Now take note, the, uh, the uncomfortable part about this isn't only the fact that um, Jesus is telling a story that challenges our human standards on justice and fairness. He also is telling a story about some guys making wine, and that's just, that's a little rough for us too, right? However, that's more of a challenge probably for our modern Christianity than Jesus' original audience. This was everyday part of their life. He goes on, the pay was perfectly normal. You received the denarius for a normal day's wage for working man. The men who were standing in the marketplace were not street corner idlers. They weren't lazing their time away. In Palestine, the marketplace was full of the equivalent of the labor exchange. A man came there first thing in the morning, carrying his tools, and then waited there until somebody else came and hired him. The men who stood in the marketplace were not gossiping idlers. They were waiting for work. And the fact that some of them even stood until 5 o'clock in the evening is proof of how desperate they wanted work, how desperate they were to work. They weren't lazy. They were wanting work. At 5 o'clock in the evening, when closing time is just an hour away, they're still standing there looking for work. These men were hired laborers. At the time, they were the lowest class of workers. And life for them was always desperately precarious. House slaves actually had more importance in a society than these guys did. Because, you know, if you work in somebody's house, you almost start to feel like family. You might even get a bedroom. You get to eat some of the master's food. These guys got hired kind of crappy pay and just got to thrown into the jobs that nobody else wanted. These guys were looked down upon. This is exactly what Jesus uses to tell the story of the kingdom. For visual, let's pause for a minute. How do we find an example of this in our society? Who would we say are these kind of people? How about immigrants? We've lived in places, Katie and I, where there's day laborers that still very much line up outside of a Home Depot or outside of a special place. What about uh, day laborers, people who uh, had, had trouble keeping jobs, and so they advertise on Craigslist, like, hey, I, I will mow your grass, I'll do your garden for this. Maybe those with felonies, right? Those people that can't get jobs because they have felony backgrounds, and so they are people that are willing to be hired on the spot like this. This is a story of a man who needs work done on his property, and so he goes to these kind of people, and he hires them. When Katie and I moved back from California, we hired some day laborers to help us move and pack our U-Haul. It's a very common practice. 
and it was in his time as well. They would agree upon a wage. In fact, you didn't pull up the Home Depot and say like, hey, uh, I got 40 bucks, who's working for that? It was pretty much the same uh, agreed upon average for everyone, the same when Jesus' time. They knew that if they worked hard, they'd get a denarius. And so he puts those guys to work, and he runs back into town to get some more supplies, and he sees some other guys lined up, and then he comes back into town again, he sees some other guys lined up, and so on. So he starts to feel tenderness for these guys that are standing there at 5 o'clock at night, knowing they're not going to be able to put food on their plate because nobody is going to hire them this close to closing time. However, as he's sitting there and he sees them, he realizes, you know, today's a hot day. See some clouds forming. Rain's probably coming soon. I need to make sure that I get my harvest in, and I want to put some food on these guys' table. I have the money. I want to use my money for good reason. So he tells these bottom-of-the-barrel leftover workers that he'll hire them as well. He throws them in the back of his truck, throws the tools back there, drives home, pulls the truck bed down, they jump out, and they begin to work in the vineyard as well. As the sunset kind of comes, and as the day comes to a close, everyone comes in, the foreman's in the barn, and he's starting to pay out. He's got a big roll of cash. I like to picture him with a big roll of cash, and he's just kind of, here's your day. Here's your day, right? Here's your day. And so these guys that kind of feel like they've been there longer than everyone else feel that's not fair. Why, why would he get paid 40 bucks when I've been, been outside all day? You may be working like 110 degree temperature. The wind wasn't even blowing. You know what I mean? You kept running into town for Lord knows what reason. You weren't even helping. Like, you know, I deserve more than $40. That's unacceptable. It's unfair. These guys did less work than us. How many of us would probably think like this too, right? This is the challenging part. If we were honest with ourselves, we all think like this. Think about it. We get mad if someone starts years after us on our jobs and starts making more money than us. That's why we're not supposed to talk about our payrolls on jobs. We, I watched a newscast this week where a Russian immigrant was mad that he has seen other immigrants get into the country in a different means than he did. That's not fair. We don't believe in getting walked over. We believe in fairness. We believe in earning what's ours. Otherwise, we won't make it to the next level of success in life. So why should these bums, these guys have said, these guys that are lesser than us, and they're definitely less tan than us because they haven't been out in the sun, get as much as we did? Right? We automatically see those that we categorize as lesser than us as uh, people that deserve a little less than us. The landowner looks at these guys spouting off and tells them, tell me, didn't I pay you what I agreed you to pay for? You didn't try to bargain with me. You didn't say, oh, I'll come do the work for two denariuses. You said, I'll do the work for one denarius. So who are you to say that I can't do that to somebody else? This is my property, this is my pay, this is my work. Who are you to tell me what I can and cannot do? Of course, Jesus was not talking about farms. He was not talking about day laborers and payroll at all. He was explaining the tender heart of God and the equality that was in the kingdom of God. He was eliminating that natural part of us that craves and quests for fairness and justice. Jesus challenges the very idea that what we get is what we deserve. 
Now, this story is one that troubles me. Like this microphone. I hope it troubles you, too. I hope we don't just try to explain it away and start to move on. And what he's actually saying is just that, you know, we need to treat people fairly. Because it's actually so much more than that. It's these parables and teachings of Jesus I realized this week as I was reflecting on this that used to make me want to run away from society and kind of live in a hippie commune, right? At the end of the 70s, the Jesus People Movement, there was these, these groups that would form. And there's still one in Chicago called Jesus People USA, but there were other ones. And there were a bunch of Christians that would get saved and, and they'd get baptized on the beach and then they'd move into kind of a, a community together and they'd have a mission together. There was one that would plant trees in Seattle there was one that fed the homeless in Chicago. You know, there was one that fed the homeless in New York. And these guys would just live together. They'd worship together. It was very much like the early church of Acts. And I realized that as I see parables like this, there's something in me that still kind of yearns for that, right? Like, wow, how cool would it be if we just got rid of our stuff and we just gave whatever we had left over equally to everyone? Now, because we crave justice and fairness, some of you have just called me a communist in your head, right? While that may sound good to us, we always say, but we live in reality. Can't be like that. We can't just sit around campfires singing our own songs. However, at the end of the day, we realize that that makes us uncomfortable, and so we want to be comfortable with these challenges in this story, and we kind of redefine them. But folks, the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God will always challenge our preconceived ideas when it manifests in our everyday lives. It will always offend our minds to reveal what's in our hearts. It will always challenge the other stuff in our life, money, friends, priorities, politics, whatever, because the kingdom of God does not share space. And the same is true with our human standards on what is accepted and what's not. Klein Snodgrass reminds us the context is carefully framed by Matthew, at least, to deal with the issues of status, wealth, greed, and discipleship. The underlying message in this section is the reversal of the world's values. That part of us that says, but we live in reality, that's where we snap back into the world's values. Jesus is drawing a line in the sand in this story and the one previous that says, you cannot exist in both. This passage has been debated by theologians for years, and Klein Snodgrass goes on to captivate the importance of this parable by referencing some famous theologians and how they viewed this. Holtgren placed this section on parables revealing God's extraordinary forgiveness and grace. Jolikar said, it presents the gospel in a nutshell. What about that? Justice looking in different ways, the gospel in a nutshell. Mo Montefiore, I wish that was my name, all right, Pastor Montefiore, thought it was one of the greatest parables at all. And Fuchs and Junigal considered it the climax of Matthew. So Matthew's gospel is leading up to this point to where it declares that everything that you think and know is, oh my word, this is going to be so offensive, wrong! <laughs> right? That's what Matthew's whole point is. So as we think about that, what part of, how is it easier to understand equality then? Listen to this. Is it easier for the rich man or the poor man to understand equality? Poor man, right? 
the citizen or the immigrant who understands equity more? I mean, who understands equality more? The immigrant. The criminal or the nerdy guy? The guy that's never done any wrong. Who understands equality more? The criminal because he never had it. The guy in debt or the guy that's never had a hardship? Who understands equality more? The guy in a hardship. He doesn't know what it means to be comfortable. It's important for us to realize that the way we think and the way we know and the way we expect others to be is deeply challenged in this parable. Just a chapter later, Jesus himself makes the same kind of offensive statement to his point. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are, entertaining, are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did. I feel like Jesus is kind of like, eh, 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 right? Like, and even after you saw this, you still didn't repent and believe. So I think if Jesus was here today, we might see that he would contrast it in this way. You might have some felons and some immigrants, probably still some prostitutes, right, sitting here. And then over here, you'd have some respected pastors, some kind of church legacy members, generational Christians over here. Pointing to the immigrant side, he'd look at them and say, Church, these people you've despised with your policy, your life, your ignorance, your quest of justice, they get the kingdom more than you do. You are missing out because you won't let your mindset be challenged. You still think the most important thing in your mind is justice, your expectations, your wealth, your accomplishments, your fairness. That's more important to you than it is to me, Jesus would say. That's what you want. It's not what I want. Don't make that true of you. I don't want to miss out on what God's doing. I don't want you to miss out on what God's doing. So as we come to a close, there's a few notes I want to take away from this parable, and we're going to work through these really quick. This parable cautions us to honor the privilege extended to us. Recognize that we are recipients of God's grace, his, his generosity. We are those workers we're not the one that dictates who gets paid. You, you realize that's God, right? Jesus, the four men. We're the workers. The parable cautions us to honor that privilege extended to us, but never be the privileged. Never allow yourself to go, yep, my nose is up here and everyone else is down here, right? Secondly, as we experience the kingdom's transformation, as we experience that generosity, we must find our idea of mercy and justice challenged. The way mercy and justice exist in the world, you get what you deserve. The way God's justice works, I'm the farmer who pays everyone the way I want to pay them, equally. Our hearts should be encouraged that there are no favorites or unequals in the kingdom of God. Not only did Jesus pay them the same, he allowed the people who came later to get out of the field first. Oh man, that's unfair. Our hearts should be encouraged that there are no favorites or unequals in the kingdom of God. That means you and I, in our human brokenness, have experienced this. Take heart, be encouraged that God is this kind of God. He's poured out his generosity on you. He hasn't looked at somebody else in your life and said, man, that person's better than you are. He's equally poured out his grace and his judgment and his justice on you. 
in doing that, God embraces us with tenderness, compassion, and generosity. And we should do likewise. That's the whole point of this parable, to know how to live within the kingdom. And in doing that, we serve and work in partnership with the kingdom, not out of reward and obligation. It was never about what they got paid, but because we have joy. Joy is a big part of this parable. It's actually a big part of all the parables. The joy we experience in our relationship, our spiritual formation with God, should affect and overflow to everyone and everything else. Folks, we must let the kingdom transform us and challenge us. We cannot fit the kingdom in. It must challenge us from within. Folks, we cannot let the kingdom transform. We must let the kingdom transform and challenge us. We cannot hold on to our human standards and make Jesus' words fit to them. We cannot live in comfort and follow a king that demanded people leave their affluence, their accomplishment, their achievements, and what they acquired. We cannot follow Jesus, we cannot follow Jesus like his early disciples if we do not see the tension of following him and the way it affects our professions, our households, our preconceived ideas of success. Thomas Keating reflects this way. Respectable folks in general do not like this parable. In other words, the quest we're taking away is we're not trying to be respectable. By respectable, I mean those who observe the norms of conventional society, but who are unaware of how much their own consciousness programs for happiness are at work in their lives, how significant a part of their good deeds are secretly motivated by the desire for acclaim, power, and security. So I invite you to think, where is God challenging you in this? Where are you claim, wanting to claim power and security? And likewise, Snodgrass speaks about the ending of this parable like this. Why do we find it so difficult to rejoice over the good that enters other people's lives? And why do we spend our time calculating how we have been cheated? The life of God's kingdom, with its focus on communal love, cannot be experienced as long as we are comparing ourselves to others and calculating what is due to us or being envious of what others receive. While we speak of justice, none of us are satisfied with average. We always think we deserve just a little bit more. Right? In God's kingdom, we don't focus on ourselves. We aren't trying to convert others into the kingdom. We are responding to others through the realities of the kingdom because we are converted. We are responding to the marginalized because they're more likely to get the kingdom. And we have experienced it and want them to experience it in the ways that we have. We don't respond to God's ideas of justice, fairness, and equality as things we change our behavior to like the rich young ruler had done. We respond to it because it has already transformed us. We don't uh, do these things because we want to convert people. We do it because we are the converted. Don't go away from this parable sad and hurt like the affluent man that could not teach Jesus' teaching on wealth. Jesus says, things look different in my kingdom. Who are you to tell me how it should be? And if we don't get that, if we don't mirror that, it's probably because we've actually closed those areas of our lives off to Jesus and his kingdom. That's a dangerous place to be. When we can't see others, the immigrant, the felon, the day laborer, the guy that can't hold a job, the mentally ill, 
in the same way that we see ourselves, it's because God's kingdom has not yet transformed us. As the worship team comes forward, I invite you to think about this. Where is it that as you think about this story, that God is challenging an area where you are comfortable with your acclaim, with your accomplishment, with your wealth? And where is he asking you to be transformed by the kingdom in such a way that you can transform those around you, not with judgments of you get what you deserve, but rather judgments of God's equal grace? I invite you to stand as we close.